Good afternoon. Thanks so much for hanging with us at this last session of the day. Maybe we'll see some of you tomorrow for the very last session that we'll also be presenting. Um, and I hope you've been enjoying pain week. I know I have. So today we're going to be talking to you about ketamine and its role in pain management. Include, in terms of financial disclosures, we have nothing to disclose. However, we will be discussing off-label use of ketamine. And we also wanted to mention that our views and opinions expressed here don't necessarily represent the VA. Our learning for object objectives for today include reviewing the mechanism of action and adverse events of ketamine and the clinical literature, which is probably going to be our focus, is looking on the literature that we have available on ketamine in certain pain conditions, particularly complex regional pain syndrome, cancer pain, and neuropathic or chronic refractory pain. And then we'll be um, taking a look at a patient case. So Mr. Brown is a 63-year-old male. He's admitted to the palliative care unit due to, second, due to intractable pain associated with pancreatic cancer. He has a history of diabetes, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, hypothyroidism, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and PTSD. He doesn't have any allergies. At home, he was on methadone 10, Q8, as well as hydromorphone 2, QID, PRN, as well as ibuprofen. Inpatient, he's still on the methadone 10, Q8, hydromorphone 4, QID, PRN, and gabapentin 300 three times a day. His average pain score is a 9 out of 10. So keep this patient in mind. We'll revisit him later. So first, let's talk a little bit about ketamine. And so the title of our presentation, Special K, is in reference to its recreational use. Um, these are some of its names, Special K. But ketamine is uh, IV anesthetic that has sedative, dissociative, sedative, and amnesic properties. It is a racemic mixture, a Schedule III controlled substance, um, and is structurally similar to PCP. Now, in terms of its mechanism of action, it interacts with multiple different receptors in the central and peripheral nervous systems. Its primary mechanism of action is through N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor antagonism. And that's its primary mechanism of action. It has a role in um, reducing central sensitization. Now, there has been a little <clears throat> controversy with its activity at opioid receptors. Um, I think earlier in the week it was mentioned it was a mu opioid receptor antagonist. Came across an article that said that. Prim most of the articles I've read say it's an agonist. But again, its primary role and responsibility and activity is from NMDA antagonism. It also um, inhibits dopamine and serotonin reuptake, as well as um, having some potential anti-inflammatory and anti-tumor effects. It can be administered via many different routes. Um, but it is primarily IV. When it's given PO, it's actually the IV formulation administered orally. And so it's often put into a juice because it has a bitter taste. IM is typically not advised in chronic pain due to the pain associated with the injection. And sub-Q can be challenging because it does require frequent rotations of the administration site. In terms of its IV pharmacokinetics and metabolism, is a major substrate of CYP 2B6, 2C9, and 3A4. So there's the potential for drug-drug interactions. And it's metabolized primarily to norketamine via N-demethylation. And norketamine has one-third of the analgesic potency of ketamine. And again, I'll mention that it is a racemic mi mixture, and the S enantiomer is more, um, has 
It's more pain-relieving properties in comparison to the R enantiomer. Its half-life is about two to three hours. However, when it's given as a prolonged infusion, the half-life is thought to be about 11 days. Um, the duration of analgesia um, with a short-term infusion is two to six hours. Um, and it is highly lipid-soluble, so it does rapidly cross the blood-brain barrier. In terms of oral pharmacokinetics and metabolism, some of the, you know, still metabolized through the same enzymes to norketamine. It has an onset of action of about 30 minutes and a half-life of about three hours with a duration of action about four to six hours. Its adverse effects are primarily divided into three main categories, the first one being central nervous system effects. So it is associated with auditory and visual hallucinations, paranoia, anxiety, inability to control thoughts, and derealization in time and space. These are typically um, short-lived and um, stop with um, discontinuation of the medication. The cardiovascular effects are due to direct negative inotropic effects as well as indirect stimulatory effects in the cardiovascular system. So it can lead to tachycardia, systemic and pulmonary hypertension, an increase in cardiac output, as well as an increase in myocardial oxygen consumption. And then finally, hepatic side effects. These are typically associated with prolonged infusions that are done in a short period of time in relation to each other. We see elevation in liver enzymes. For the management of adverse effects, um, because there is, it is thought to reduce um, opioid, um, to restore opioid sensitivity, um, it's recommended to reduce opioids by 20 to 50% their opioid dose upon initiation of ketamine to prevent opioid toxicity. The CNS adverse effects can be managed through decreasing the dose slowing the dose titration, or giving a medication to treat the symptoms, so a benzodiazepine, antipsychotic, propofol, or clonidine. And the cardiovascular effects can be mitigated with decreasing the dose. The adverse effects associated with the recreational use of ketamine are slightly different. Acute ketamine toxicity is primarily managed through supportive care, and symptoms typically resolve spontaneously within hours. Um, but there are lots of urological symptoms like ulcerative cystitis, urgency and frequency, as well as dysuria and hematuria um, with recreational use of ketamine. This typically does go away, but it can stay around for a prolonged period of time. Also leads to defect in memory um, with a reduction in brain volumes. And then there's schizotypical symptoms, a K-hole flashback with delusional thinking, dissociation, depression and this may persist or occur regularly. Some contraindications to the use of ketamine for pain would be an uncontrolled seizure disorder, active psychosis, um, elevated intracranial pressure, or having a previous adverse effect to ketamine. Some relative contraindications include uncontrolled hypertension, CHF, a recent stroke, severe neurologic impairment, or a history of psychosis. Now, patient monitoring is very protocol-driven, very specific, and there's a whole bunch of different protocols available. This is an example of just one, where they monitor heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate 30 minutes after the initial dose and any dose increase. With the heart rate, subsequent monitoring occurs every four hours, and then blood pressure and respiratory rate are monitored as needed. 
And then this protocol is slightly different, where you're checking heart rate, blood pressure at baseline, one hour after the infusion starts, 24 hours after the infusion starts, and daily thereafter. And then they give some parameters of when to contact the provider if these vital signs get out of a particular range. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the things about ketamine is that um, it can tackle the central sensitization that's occurring with chronic pain. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, as you can see, there are many different proposed indications for ketamine. So opioid-induced hyperalgesia, neuropathic pain, malignant pain, and then as well as um, some psychiatric conditions like depression, treatment-resistant depression, or PTSD. Today, our focus, obviously, will be on the pain um, proposed indications. Oh, they keep coming. <laughs> Um, so ketamine, since um, it's an off-label infusion, it's typically paid for by patients out of pocket, and an infusion can range from $400 to $1,700 per infusion. So the first disease state that we wanted to look at was ketamine and complex regional pain syndrome. Um, so CRPS is the artist formerly known as reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Um, first recognized in the Civil War, an instance rate of about 5.5 to 6, 26 per 100,000 persons. And the big hallmark of CRPS is central sensitization. Diagnosis is based on, often on one of these criteria. The Budapest criteria is kind of the um, more up-to-date approach, but most of the studies here use the IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pain criteria. It's a diagnosis of inclusion, and it um, is diagnosed when there's the presence of an initiating noxious event that's a cause of immob immobilization, and there's continuing pain, allodynia, and hyperalgesia that is disproportionate to that event, and then there's evidence at some time of edema, changes in skin blood flow, or abnormal pseudomotor activity. There are two different types. Type 1, absence of clinical signs in a peripheral nerve. Type 2, there is presence of clinical signs in a major peripheral nerve. So the first study I wanted to talk about was Signermans and colleagues. And it was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled parallel group trial. And it included about 60 patients. 48 of those were female. And keep in mind that in CRPS, it's more common in females. And they had a diagnosis of CRPS type 1 based on the IASP criteria. They received a 4.2-day IV infusion of low-dose ketamine versus placebo which was normal saline, and they used the S-ketamine formulation. Patients were started at a dose of 1.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute and titrated up based on tolerability and efficacy to a maximum dose of 7.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Their primary outcome was pain score based on the numerical, pain, on the numerical rating scale um, weekly and until week 12. They monitored liver function and blood pressure, as well as side effects. And their primary outcome result was that ketamine significantly reduced pain in the 12-week study more favorably than placebo. However, this significance in pain reduction was lost at week 12, and it did not cause any change in functional impairment. Looking at the side effects, there are quite a few patients in the placebo group that had reported side effects. 33% of them reported headache. Um, but 
more interestingly to me is that 93% of the patients who are given ketamine experience psychomimetic effects. However, only two patients in the study discontinued from the study because of psychomimetic effects. And the authors also felt that um, the study was potentially too short, um, potentially to address changes in activity. Moving on to Schwartzman and colleagues, another double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial. They planned to enroll 40 patients, but they stopped enrolling after 19 patients because um, they felt they weren't seeing significant placebo response, so um, they felt that this was going to be enough. Um, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Um, and so they had a diagnosis of CRPS based on the IASP criteria, and they got a 10-day infusion of low-dose ketamine. And so they had five days on, two days off, five days on. And they were titrated up to a maximum dose of 0.35 milligrams per kilogram per hour. And they also got treatment with clonidine and midazolam. So... What they found was that at weeks one and two and three and four, that the pain in most of the affected areas was significantly reduced compared to placebo. There was, no, uh, there was a significant change in burning pain at weeks three and four. Pain when touched or brushed lightly, there were significant changes at multiple points throughout the study. Um, and there was also an overall reduction in their pain level. Overall, they found that ketamine demonstrated statistically significant reduction in the pain score compared to placebo. Um, there were no changes in their activity level again, and, but they did notice that the number of nighttime awakenings in patients was statistically significantly decreased in the ketamine group compared to placebo. Six of the 19 subjects experienced nausea, headache, tiredness, or dysphoria. Um, however, no one reported agitation, blurred vision, or any psychomimetic effects. Nappers and colleagues, they um, actually found drug-induced liver injury following a repeated course of ketamine when they were treating patients for CRPS type 1. They had two 100-hour infusions of S-ketamine at a 16-day interval. Patients had CRPS type 1 based on ISP criteria, and there were six patients in this group um, that got ketamine at a 16-day interval and they observed liver damage in three of those patients, and therefore the study was discontinued prematurely. Patients' infusion was initiated at 1.2 micrograms per kilogram per hour and then titrated up as tolerated and effect to 7.2 micrograms per kilogram per hour. And patients in this group, they got ketamine on, group, on weeks one and week four. And then five of the six subjects in this group also developed side effects including hypertension, psychotropic side effects, as well as hepatotoxicity. Looking a little more closely at the three different patients that experienced um, liver injury, the first patient was a 65-year-old female, and after 72 hours of the infusion during her second treatment, she developed itching, a rash, and increased temperature in, in addition to elevated liver enzymes. So at that point, the ketamine infusion was terminated. Other medications were stopped. Her liver enzymes normalized within two months. Patient E was a 48-year-old female. And during routine monitoring on the third day of the ketamine infusion, 
they noticed elevated liver enzymes. The infusion was stopped, and then she developed a severe itch of both feet. Um, that eventually resolved over days to weeks, and the liver enzymes normalized within two months. And then patient F was a 46-year-old male, and on the first day of his infusion, after six hours, it was terminated because of his elevated liver enzymes, and those normalized within two months. The authors concluded that they felt that patient A and patient E had um, liver or, um, medication-induced hepatitis, um, but they weren't sure whether or not patient F it was due to the medications or not. So all the patients that had liver injury received two ketamine exposures within the four weeks' time. Now, patients that received ketamine at a wider interval had no problems with liver injury. This just supports um, routine monitoring, regular monitoring of liver function. Moving on to a systemic review by Conley and colleagues. Um, and so they ultimately had to include lesser quality research into their review because of the lack of high quality research. As you can see, there are quite a few level three and level four evidence articles included in the study. What they found was that investigators used a wide variety of different routes of administration, doses, and different outcomes. Studies often had relatively low sample sizes with variable inclusion and exclusion criteria, and there was a large placebo response. So they felt they couldn't make any sort of conclusion about determining the most effective route of administration and dose. So they felt evidence to date was inconclusive. They felt there was weak evidence for the efficacy of ketamine for CRPS, and they felt it was not considered a first-line treatment, and they felt more, more studies were needed. Can you hear me okay? No? Yes? Good. Okay. Uh, so thank you, Courtney. Um, so I'm going to touch on ketamine use and a couple other disease states. But first, I just kind of want to elaborate a little bit on how I got interested in ketamine. So at my previous VA facility, I was involved in developing ketamine protocols for both oral and IV administration. And then at my current VA facility, it's something that our pain clinics kind of talked about implementing or looking into. Um, but developing or implementing ketamine protocols are not for the faint of heart. I will tell you that it involves coordination amongst different services within the hospital, and it really can be quite controversial. Um, so this is something to keep in mind when you're considering implementing ketamine in your facility. And also, earlier this week, we, had, we heard some talks about ketamine use specifically in the ER. So there's all different ways to use ketamine. So I'm going to focus on ketamine and malignant or cancer pain. So the first study was by Salas and colleagues. They were looking at the continuous IV infusion of ketamine in refractory cancer pain. So this was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study done in seven different palliative care facilities in France. Um, a patient size of about 20, 11 of those patients received ketamine, 9 received placebo. So they were looking for at cancer pain, specifically refractory to standard opioids. If you're hearing a theme here, a lot of these patients are refractory to standard treatment. So they had a pain score above 4 out of 10 after 24 hours of continuous IV morphine infusion. So the two groups were ketamine IV infusion in combination with morphine IV versus placebo with morphine IV. 
There was no max dose of morphine in either group, and both groups had morphine, IV, PRN available every one hour. So they still had breakthrough doses available. Ketamine dosing was started at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day, then increased to 1 milligram per kilogram per day after 24 hours if the pain score remains above 1 out of 10. And now these scores are, you know, very low because we're looking at the cancer pain population in a palliative care setting. So the primary outcome was looking at the change in the pain score between baseline and T1, which was really only two hours after they started the infusion or the baseline evaluation. They also collected data at 24 and 48 hours after the infusion. So what was found was that self-reported pain scores did not differ significantly between the two groups, regardless of the raw values and when they looked at the different time points. So at two hours, 24 hours, even 48 hours. But again, that's a very short period of time to look for differences in, in pain. Morphine consumption did not decrease during the study period. So a lot of different literature has pointed to the fact that ketamine can be opioid sparing or improve patient sensitivity to opioids. So a lot of people will actually find that they need less opioids, but they did not find this in this study. <clears throat> and there was no difference between the groups in analgesic effect, tolerability, or patient satisfaction. There were, I think it was three patients total who had a, a pain score reduction of more than three points, but this was not statistically significant. So they were not able to conclude that the ketamine-morphine combination was superior to morphine alone. So now this was uh, Hardy and colleagues looking at the efficacy and toxicity of subcutaneous ketamine in cancer pain. Now, um, a little trick here is that we don't typically recommend the subcutaneous administration of ketamine because it can be very irritating and then you need to change the site frequently. So I don't know if this is something we would actually implement in our practice now, but this was how it was studied. So they were, looked at a, a larger patient population, 187 patients, intention to treat, and 149 met definition of completion. So they were looking at chronic refractory pain, um, to stand, refractory to standard opioids and co-analgesics at predefined dose levels, a pain score greater than 3 out of 10. Uh, and I believe in this study, most patients, the median oral morphine dose at the time of the study start was about 300 milligrams. They were on pretty good doses of opioids. They looked at ketamine versus placebo, which was normal saline, over a five-day schedule. Ketamine was initiated at 100 milligrams over 24 hours with a max dose of 500 milligrams over 24 hours. So there were three different dosing groups, 100 milligrams, 300 milligrams, 500 milligrams. And when you think about 100 milligrams in a 24-hour period, that sounds like a lot, but when you break it down by hour and like average it out by a 70-kilogram patient, it's really not that different than a lot of the other studies that have been done. So they decided that if 80% of the study drug had been delivered and average pain was improved by more than two units with no more than four breakthrough doses, the dose remained the same. So they only increased if the patients did not experience adequate relief. The primary outcome was looking at clinically relevant improvement in pain at the end of the five-day study period, and their definition of clinically relevant is basically what I just explained. So there was no difference in the outcome in participants who met the definition of completion or in the subgroup that received five days of the study drug or when all participants with baseline scores were included. No, no significant difference was noted with multiple analysis methods. So they tried really hard, but they couldn't find any differences. Now what's interesting, 
They didn't meet statistically significant difference. They technically didn't meet power by just a couple patients, but they reported number needed to treat and number needed to harm. And, you know, from my experience and discussing with some of my colleagues, that's really not normally done unless you meet statistical significance. So I would take those numbers with a grain of salt. But what's interesting is they found that the number needed to harm is much lower than the number needed to treat. Uh, when they tried to divide the patients by pain type, nociceptive versus neuropathic, there was no statistically significant predictor of response. And in the ketamine group, almost twice the incidence of side effects compared to on day one and throughout the study compared to the placebo group. And not, un not surprising to me, injection site reactions were three times more likely each day in the ketamine group compared to the placebo group. So then there was a Cochrane review. So this was supposed to be an update to a Cochrane review that was done in 2003. So they looked at the literature. Three studies were identified by an updated search. However, all of them had to be excluded from the review. So they were just left with the two studies that were included in the original review that was published in 2003. And both concluded that ketamine improves the effectiveness of morphine and cancer pain. So the one study was done by Mercadante and colleagues in 2000, and they were looking at IV bolus ketamine administration, whereas the other study was done in 1996 and was looking at intrathecal ketamine administration, which both of those methods for administration are kind of unusual, um, but those were the two studies that they uh, looked at. So they couldn't pool the data because there were too few subjects, and the clinical differences between the groups was too great. But they concluded overall that the current evidence is insufficient to assess the benefits and harms of ketamine as an adjuvant to opioids for the relief of cancer pain. More randomized controlled trials are needed. So are we seeing a trend here? <laughs> and then Bredlau and colleagues, uh, they did a systemic review and synthesis of the literature looking at adults and children with cancer. We focused on just the results for the adults here in this presentation, but they did look at uh, ketamine use in children as well. So we included a couple different types of studies, a rather large patient group, 483, when you pooled them all together. They didn't directly compare the trials, but they looked, um, because the different trials used different ways of administering ketamine, they found that the typical starting dose of oral ketamine in an inpatient setting was 0.5 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram per day in divided doses, and that a final dose of 50 milligrams three times a day is considered safe for long-term use. And it was noted that of the five randomized controlled trials, two of them found that patients reported better pain relief with ketamine, and in three of the studies, they found that patients actually reported lower or had lower doses of morphine use in the ketamine groups. Um, so then they were looking at typical starting dose of IV ketamine, and they concluded, based on all the different studies that they looked at, that a typical starting dose of IV ketamine shouldn't be more than 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour for patient safety. And that a typical starting dose of oral ketamine, if you're going to be starting it in an outpatient setting, should be more like 0.2, and that should say 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day in divided doses. So slightly lower than if you're going to start it in an inpatient setting. But again, a final dose of 50 milligrams TID, TID is considered safe and effective. And then they concluded that intrathecal ketamine infusion should be avoided because there's been two case reports of spinal cord necrosis on autopsy. And really, ketamine administered intrathecally, if it's not preservative-free, that preservative can be neurotoxic, which is the dangerous part. Oh, it didn't crop out. But this is, uh, 
This is showing you the, uh, a nice table kind of summarizing or comparing the different studies that they looked at. So pretend it's zoomed in. But um, so limitations of this overall, the systemic review, was that there was a small number of studies, only a few of them are randomized controlled trials, small sample sizes, short follow-up compared to the chronic nature of the pain being treated. And again, ketamine appears to be something that should be investigated for future use. So then looking at ketamine in neuropathic pain, again, because ketamine, what it's postulated to be very effective for is central sensitization. So Marchetti and colleagues looked at the efficacy and safety of oral ketamine for intractable chronic pain. So this was a five-year retrospective non-randomized study. So they looked at 55 cases total with 51 patients. So four of the patients actually ended up having two courses of ketamine treatment. Neuropathic pain made up 60% of the patients. So they were looking for, they included patients who had chronic pain, no longer responding to usual treatment. Ketamine IV and PO was gradually titrated over the course of one to three months and then gradually tapered down to limit withdrawal symptoms. When they were getting the oral ketamine, as Courtney alluded to already, you want to mix it with soda or fruit juice because it's just not, doesn't taste good plain. And when they started ketamine, as we previously recommended, the daily dose of opioids was reduced by twofold for all patients on high dose opioids. Now, what's interesting about this study is that 51% of their patients weren't actually on opioids when they started ketamine. That's because they had already failed opioid therapy in general. But we'll see, that can kind of be a predictor as to how you're going to respond to ketamine therapy in general. So they started ketamine a couple different ways. Some patients, they started it in the hospital with an IV administration, 10 days of hospitalization to start the IV infusion test. Then they converted the IV infusion to an oral dose, and then the patients were sent home. And then they took the ketamine for one to three months at a full dose, or the protocol was terminated if no significant improvement in pain was found at three milligrams per kilogram per day. Other patients, I think when they got more comfortable using ketamine, actually only were hospitalized for one day for a four-hour infusion test of ketamine, and then based on that, were started on an oral ketamine dose and sent home with similar parameters. And then there was actually even another group where they got so comfortable with ketamine, the patient took their first dose in the office, and if they tolerated it okay, they were sent home with a one-week supply and then told to come back and check in. So the things that they were looking at was pain on a pain scale before ketamine treatment and immediately after the IV infusion. For the patients who got oral ketamine, they were looking at uh, pain scores while they were on the treatment which was checked at every medical appointment and then after ketamine had been stopped. And then they were looking at the de-escalation of opioids because, again, that's one of the postulated benefits with ketamine is that you can actually end up reducing your opioid consumption. And so they considered it clinically significant when the reduction in opioid dose was greater than 30%. So they categorized patients into four groups, effective, partially effective, opioid sparing only, or failure. And it was based on their pain reduction and their quality of life improvements as well as their opioid dose. So to be considered effective, you had to have a mean pain reduction of 50% or more and quality of life significantly improved. So they found that there was actually a mean reduction in pain with oral ketamine compared to the before treatment, about 40% plus or minus standard deviation. So I'd say that's pretty significant. Oral ketamine was effective in 44% of their patients, so a total of 24 patients. And what's even more interesting 
is uh, two of those patients reported sustained pain relief for over two months after the ketamine treatment, and 10 of them reported sustained pain relief for over six months after the ketamine treatment. And then you'll see here the other patients fell into the various categories, with 22% of patients falling into the completely ineffective category. Now, patients without any opioid treatment while they were on ketamine showed a 36% failure rate versus those receiving opioids only had a 7% failure rate. So that's statistically significant, and I think it just highlights the fact that really ketamine is not meant to replace opioids in chronic pain. It's more as an, it was an adjunct of therapy. And at the end of treatment, when ketamine decreased pain intensity, patients were actually, get, get this, more often working and off work less often because of disability. So that's one of the first studies we came across that actually reported improvement in functional status. And um, adverse effects are listed there, but almost 50% of the patients had no adverse effects. So then looking at kind of a smaller population, but they experience significant chronic pain are the spinal cord injury patients, or SCI. Um, spinal cord injury is an injury to the spinal cord that leads to varying degrees of motor or sensory deficits and paralysis. So spinal cord injury patients can have pain above the site of the spinal cord injury, at the site, or below the site, and it can persist for years after the acute injury. So the global incidence of traumatic spinal cord injury is listed here. The United States has the highest prevalence of spinal cord injury, and the country of India has the lowest prevalence of spinal cord injury. And if you look at the numbers, chronic pain in spinal cord injury patients was reported to be anywhere between 11 to 94% of patients. So that's, a lot of these patients suffer from chronic pain. And severe disabling pain in anywhere from 18 to 63% of the patients. So this is really a literature review looking at the neuro, uh, neuropathic pain treatment of spinal cord injury. So there wasn't a ton of data, but there were three different studies. They were all very brief, but it kind of gives us an idea. So the first study looked at IV ketamine in combination with oral gabapentin, which was found to be more effective than oral gabapentin in combination with placebo immediately after administration, but this effect was not present two weeks post-treatment. But if it was just a one-time dose, I don't know that we would expect that much benefit. The second study looked at ketamine versus lidocaine versus placebo over the course of two weeks, and ketamine but not lidocaine showed significant improvement. And then study three looked at ketamine in combination with alfentanil, which is an opioid, um, and that also was found to be significantly beneficial in SCI patients. But again, all of these studies were very brief. So for better data, we would want to study it for more long-term. And then finally, uh, Topical and peripheral ketamine as an analgesic. So I think compounding is a very new and kind of, I wouldn't say new, the case reports that are coming out with topical ketamine in the 1990s. But there are compounding pharmacies that specialize in specific pain treatment products. So I think the hard thing is finding a pharmacy that has a recipe for this, finding the patients that can afford to pay for the, the copay if the insurance won't cover these compounded prescriptions. I know that in the VA, we have very, very strict criteria when it comes to compounding. We basically don't compound anything if we don't have to. Um, so this was a literature review to summarize the clinical studies using topical and peripheral ketamine for pain management. So there's different schools of thought. There's been plain ketamine topical products used, as well as topical ketamine in combination with other agents for neuropathic pain. 
So I think a lot of people want to know, well, geez, if I apply topical ketamine, is it going to be systemically absorbed? Am I going to be looking to have these side effects and all those kinds of things? So short-term use of ketamine anywhere from 0.1% to 10%, there was no detectable ketamine or norketamine in the plasma. But long-term use or at higher doses of ketamine above that, we don't really know. Um, and you can't really see it here, but amitriptyline is bolded because when you look at the charts that I'm going to show you, that's like the most common drug that I see com in combination with ketamine, in this study at least. So typically amitriptyline and ketamine was used in combination. And, and the thought for how this, is works, how this works or is effective is that there's peripheral nerves, you know, in the body, and then applying topical ketamine locally works on the to prevent the glutamate. Um, and also it's postulated that ketamine has anti-inflammatory effects, so it's kind of a dual mechanism. So here is the first table, and I just highlighted the ones that's found either reports of benefit with ketamine use or it was found to be actually statistically significantly beneficial. So those are mostly the plain ketamine products, and then here you have some of the combination ketamine products. Again, amitriptyline seemed to be one of the most common ones that we saw. So they use it for anything from peripheral neuropathic pain, excuse me, to chemotherapy-induced neuropathy or radiation skin reaction. And a few others here. So I think this is a very probably up-and-coming area of use. I think that there are compounding pharmacies out there that are doing this. But who's the best patient for this, and how can we kind of predict the best response for topical ketamine, I think is something that could be studied or investigated. But the potential benefits of using topical ketamine is that you don't have to worry about the systemic side effects. Okay, <clears throat> so let's revisit our patient case, Mr. Brown. It's almost time, and I know we're all anxious to get up here on a Friday evening. So this is actually based on a patient that um, I followed at my previous facility. So he's a 63-year-old male admitted to the palliative care secondary to intractable pain associated with pancreatic cancer. So when he was admitted to the unit, they kept his methadone the same. They increased his hydromorphone. They doubled it. And then they started him on gabapentin. Two days after, on the second day of his admission, they did a celiac plexus block to try to help with the pain, but this was ineffective. So his average pain remained at 9 out of 10. So on day five of his admission, his methadone dose is now up to 15 milligrams every eight hours. His hydromorphone dose is now doubled again to eight milligrams four times a day PRN, and we've increased his gabapentin, but his pain remains uncontrolled at nine out of 10. So here we're starting to really think about what are our other options, and really, in this case, we, we decided to go with IV hydromorphone. So we started a PCA with a basal and a PRN dose. After aggressive titration of both gabapentin and the IV hydromorphone over the course of a few more days, his pain remains unbearable. So at this point, we're thinking opioid-induced hyperalgesia. We're thinking opioid tolerance, like nothing's working, and he's in excruciating pain. The IV hydromorphone basal rate is now up to 10 milligrams per hour. I think in real life it was even higher than that. So we decided to start uh, oral ketamine. So this is where I need your interaction. And I will call on people. So the following parameters should be monitored during ketamine administration regardless of route of administration. So raise your hand if you think it's A, blood pressure and heart rate. Okay. It's B, sign the symptoms of infection. C, auditory or visual hallucinations. D, liver enzymes. E, none of the above. Or F, A, C, and D are correct. Ooh, very good. Yeah. 
All right, question number two. The following medications have demonstrated the ability to mitigate potential adverse effects of ketamine administration. A, benzodiazepines. B, midazolam. C, antipsychotics. D, propofol. E, clonidine. Or F, all of the above. Very good, very good. There's some school of thought that even argue that you could order uh, one of these drugs like at baseline, that way the nurse has it available for PRN use without having to call the physician if, if something comes up. Very good. And last but not least, for the management of Mr. Brown's pain in the setting of oral ketamine, initiation at 10 milligrams three times a day, the following actions should be taken by the inpatient palliative care team. A, screen for contraindications to ketamine therapy. B, order lorazepam, PRN, psychosis, or anxiety. C, preemptively decreases opioid dose by 20 to 50% 20 to, to prevent opioid toxicity. D, order a daily EKG. E, all of the above. Or F, A, B, and C. Okay, we're still awake. Very good. And actually, this patient did really well with oral ketamine, and we were able to decrease his basal uh, hydromorphone use quite significantly. Um, we monitored his, side, his um, vitals and things like that, and he ended up having to be decreased down and off of it because he was having high blood pressure um, and tachycardia. He did have some dreams at night, but it was nothing distressing to him. So that wasn't something that we were necessarily wor worried about, but it did end up helping him. So what's the future of Special K? So there's two different pharmaceutical companies out there that have things in the pipeline, um, one of which is actually a variant of uh, ketamine that lacks a dissociative side effects. When I looked at clinicaltrials.gov in May of this year, there were seven studies actively recruiting patients to investigate the use of ketamine in various pain conditions. So I think this is really an upcoming uh, area of interest. So in conclusion, we can't really conclude that ketamine is certainly effective or superior to typical opioid use but we know that it is an area that certainly warrants further investigation, including randomized controlled trials or other types of studies. Um, it's postulated to improve pain related to CRPS, certain types of malignant pain, intractable chronic non-malignant pain, and neuropathic pain. And there's all kinds of protocols out there. Um, so, you know, everyone varies a little bit differently, especially given whatever concerns your hospital or facility has when it comes to ketamine. And with that, we'll take any questions or comments. Thank you all for hanging around. Sure. Yeah, no, I personally haven't, and I would guess that that's probably from a compounding pharmacy yeah. somewhere, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know, you know, what the, was, the, was it clearly labeled what the milligrams were and all that? Yeah, yeah. That's like a standard oral dose, though. Any other questions? He was on it for, if I remember correctly, it was about 10 or 12 days. 
And then his pain got better, and then some of those, his blood pressure and tachycardia were concerning, so we slowly titrated him off, and he did fine until he passed away. He, well, he ended up passing away in the, in the hospice unit, yeah. Mm-hmm. For chronic use, you're saying? Um, for well, for oral, they recommend typically TID or Q8 hours. They're saying the one study was saying that 50 milligrams TID would be like a maximum dose to continue long term. Theoretically, but then there's also the other school of thought where doing a course of treatment, taking a break, and then coming back and doing another course of treatment. So that's one of the problems is that there's lots of different ways of dosing, different routes, different dosing schedules that kind of all still needs to be figured out. Say what was the last part? Yeah, so, well, I can't speak for every VA, but like it's very different how each facility decides to implement it. So I've heard of some facilities where, oh, just mine. So I don't work at the facility where we, we when I developed the inpatient protocol at Minneapolis, we were doing IV inpatient ketamine infusion. Um, but I think something that we're throwing around is doing an outpatient infusion um, and then sending the patient home is what more, something more that we're thinking of. Um, we didn't really put a set duration on it. It was till the patient reported pain benefit. But we, so both facilities, we were using it in those refractory patients. So we've been kind of keeping an eye on patients so far where I work currently that we think would be good candidates for ketamine. And we have maybe four or five patients. It's not something we would use all the time. Yep, CRPS, um, we had a few cancer patients with really severe refractory um, malignant pain. We had a patient with pancreatic cancer who couldn't have a celiac plexus blocked on because of his lab values. So some of those more extenuating circumstances. Yeah, so I personally know, but that is another area of research that's looked at ketamine for that specific indication or use. Yeah, they're looking at it in bariatric surgery right now. Mm -hmm. If they have CRP, do you still cut the dose in half to CRP in the beginning? Maybe not necessarily in half, but you still should reduce the opioid dose because you could almost, in effect, cause an opioid overdose because you're, in theory, you're sensitizing the body again to the opioid with ket by starting ketamine. Yeah. I would have to check with the people uh, that I work with, and if if they're comfortable with me sharing it, I can share it. Mm hmm. Can I give you a card? Sure. I'm sure there's protocols and, that yeah, are floating around the VA. So if there are, and and there's two two or three different studies. I wrote down the names if you want them. They publish their protocols in the studies. Um, 
And, there, and those people who presented earlier this week also from, I believe they were from UF Health Jacksonville, they also have a website with their protocol available. And then, like I said, the tricky thing is every facility has its nuances, so kind of what are they comfortable with and what are the providers comfortable with. No, I, some people don't really like the idea of oral, but it, it worked whenever we, you know, identified patients that would be good candidates, so, yeah. So if you want to come up, we can give you the name of the studies that, where the, publish, the or, protocols publish. Yeah, give us your information, we can share it with you. Thank you.